Warning, this podcast will challenge your thinking. Welcome to Business Problems Solved. In this podcast, we help you solve your business problems by providing real examples and practical approaches to make today better than yesterday. Introducing your host, the multi-sector, self-professed, most improved improvement person and qualified business problem solver, Lee Horton. Hey, it's Lee. Today I get to the opportunity to chat with somebody I was uh, advised to speak to probably about 12 months ago now who could help me personally. I've managed to finally track him down. Uh, he's a busy, popular chap. I got a load of value from this uh, conversation. I hope you do too. Enjoy. Hey, it's Lee. Welcome to Business Problem Solved. Today, I have the great pleasure of chatting with an author, a speaker, entrepreneurial go-to guy and CEO of Dent Global. Hello there, Daniel Priestley. Lee, thank you for having me on your podcast. No, thank you very much, Daniel. Whereabouts are you in the world and what are you up to? I'm in London. I'm a, uh, I'm enjoying, it's actually a sunny afternoon. It was snowing this morning wow. in London. Wow, so a right mixed bag there for you. Um, it was. So for those people that don't know who you are, which I'm... Um, the few and far between, I'm guessing. Uh, what is your backstory and how, how have you got to sit in that seat where you are today? Yeah, so my background is as an entrepreneur. When I was 19 years old, I was uh, recruited as employee number three for a new startup. Um, and I, I got to have a great mentor relationship with the founder and CEO. Um, over the course of two years, that business grew to about 7 million in revenue and about 60, 70 people on the team. And uh, it was just this awesome practical MBA, I guess you'd call it, where I uh, essentially I dropped out of university, I dropped out of my um, course on business, and I just went straight into growing a business, sales, marketing, product innovation, hiring, firing, uh, team meetings, and huge stress stress and pressure, 60-hour weeks um, while we were growing that business. And what was special about it is that I had this just brilliant chemistry with the founder and we just talked about all the ideas and sit up late at night having dinner and a glass of wine talking about how the business is going and what we want to do and just it was just an awesome time and then two years in I had a bit of a fight with him and uh, I said to him that I wanted to have I wanted him to give me some shares in the business and he snapped and said listen if you want shares why don't you go start your own business and I thought oh okay I thought oh wow that's uh now, you've got to be careful what you say to a 22-year-old, right? So um, so I went off and started my own business, very similar to his, actually, almost <laughs> identical, different name, but, but uh, in most ways it was materially the same. And it, it grew extremely quickly. I, I ended up with an $11 million a year business before I was 25. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was an amazing fast growth ride from 22 to 25. I, I did that. So then I was hooked on entrepreneurship and basically I started company after company and Today, I've got a, a group of five companies, uh, six actually, sorry, that I run, and um, and we're global, we're in Australia, we're in Canada, we've got great clients in Singapore and the USA, and uh, and, and obviously the UK. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I, I guess from my passion of entrepreneurship, I, I went off and wrote four books. As I was kind of learning stuff, I was writing it down, and, and I thought the safest place to put it was in a book. Yeah. And, uh, and and basically, I set out to write one book and ended up writing four, um, wow. and I've got a got a fifth on the way. So, so basically, that's that's a bit of the story, I suppose, over the last twenty years. Fantastic. So, a, a quick question then. So, how did your mentor take 
that that you were you wanted to do something very similar and and i'm guessing that you were you were growing faster than than maybe he was he was growing at that time how how was that relationship at that point in time in the short term it was um a little bit tense uh that we were very we were very close but he he actually ended up uh, nicknaming me the vacuum because when i left a bunch of people left there was probably probably 10 people who were at the company at the very beginning who when i left they all just went yeah we've had our we've had we've had our time what happens to a business is the first 10 people feel that they're very special and they uh, feel like there's um, a special bond that they have and that the business should be a certain way which is like a little mini family and by the time you hit 50 to 60 people the business isn't the same anymore it's not it's not a venture it's a it's a workplace uh, and it's actually appropriate that the types of people who are super pumped at the beginning actually feel a little bit jilted and, and that the things have changed underneath them and that's normal yeah. but I basically sparked uh, 10 people leaving and, and he called me the vacuum hmm. and um, anyway we, we later on probably a year or two later we sat down and compared notes and, and started our friendship up again and we've been friends ever since and we've got a great bond and he's gone on strength to strength he's he's become a very successful property investor and developer um, with tens of millions probably over 100 million worth of property now um, he used his business to parlay into uh, into every year buying properties and uh, and he's done very 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 well perfect perfect so you, you mentioned earlier on that you're a, you're, you're an author of multiple books um, and, and this is how I uh, first was introduced to yourself so somebody mentioned um, uh, that I should definitely read key person of influence and then I, I followed that with with all the subscribes but what is a key person of influence and why is that important well if you can imagine in most industries everyone's saying the same things and talking about the same things and they've got the same products and services available and you know as a as a business or an industry matures you essentially have uh, a lot of the offerings sounding the same well actually one of the big differentiators is that there are certain people who are key people of influence in the industry they have a profile they're known liked and trusted in their industry um, they tell great stories they kind of do a bit of thought leadership as to where the industry is going and they they get a good reputation and when they're involved their businesses the ones they're involved in seem to kind of magically jump up a notch and get lift off so um you know the most extreme example of this would be richard branson you know if he's yeah. involved in something he can get funding he can get talented people to join uh he can you know make the business he can make an old industry sound new again uh when he's involved in it uh, more recently you've got you know, another extreme example might be Elon Musk. Obviously, he can create a flamethrower business and sell $30 million worth of flamethrowers just because it's a fun thing to do. Yeah. So we've, you know, we've all seen this phenomenon out there. Most people could relate to the fact that someone in their industry is seen to be a key person of influence. And my first business essentially revolved around promoting um, roadshows and events. And we needed to have a key person of influence at every event to get people to turn up. So the way that we sold the tickets and the way that we actually got people to turn up to these type of events was that we had interesting speakers and people who were known, liked and trusted and had a profile in the industry. And that was the key to getting, getting a great result of people turning up. So I, I had a front row seat of seeing what life is like as a key person of influence. Yeah. I thought, wow, you know, if only people knew, um, you know, there's a classic scenario where, you know, you get someone who's really high profile and they go and they give a talk and someone comes up to them and says, you know, can, can I share with you an idea, but will you sign an NDA? And kind of they go, oh, no, not really. 
And if only you knew that behind the scenes, a key person of influence gets 10, 15, 20 opportunities a day pitched to them. And it's just like, oh, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not going to steal your idea. Yeah. Uh, they, are, they are swamped. And, uh, and, and I sort of, I remember thinking to myself in the early days, until you're a key person of influence, there's really no point. Like until you're a key person of influence, your full-time job should be to become a key person of influence. So I started making down uh, some of the notes around the similarities between the people. I was, most regularly, I was paying people 10,000 pounds a day for speaking. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd often do that, uh, you know, people like dragons and um, authors and, and kind of, you know, these top people. And, uh, and I made some notes and essentially there was, there was some similarities between them. And I went, I thought to myself, well, actually, you can orchestrate that. Everyone's focused on these functional skills that are commoditized, but these guys are doing uh, something a little bit different. These guys and girls are uh, uh, focused not on the functional, but on what we call the vital uh, and the vital is the irreplaceable life force of, of what they do as opposed to the replaceable functionality. Can, can anybody be a key person of influence? I think you have to have a le level of spirit experience and a level of um, uh, insight. You have to have, a, you have, to, have to have some raw materials. Yeah. But simply having those raw materials doesn't actually translate immediately into being a key person of influence. So um, most of the people I work with today, when we because we run a key person of influence accelerator, it's designed to actually bring this out in people. We normally look for people who've got 15 plus years of experience in their industry. Um, they might have a qualification or or an advanced qualification. Um, you know, they're 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 reasonably well paid. They you know they might be on 80 grand plus of income. Um, and then we start focusing on some of the key person of influence strategies, and they jump right up. They go from and they get, in the time that it took them to go from 40 to 80, yeah. you know, they might go from 80 to a quarter of a million in income and, oh, and, yeah. and then beyond. Yeah. Fantastic. So um, in, in Key Personal, you, are, you articulate five Ps. And did you did go through these five Ps yourself and, uh, and then um, note them down? Or did you, did, did, I guess, how did you develop the five Ps and, and then put them in that order? Was it, did you? kind of agree to do it and then, then give it a go? Or did you do what you did and then then um, backtrack and, and work out what you've done? It was a little bit of both. I was always one step ahead of my clients, but I identified these five uh, skills, these five yeah. traits, and I started applying them myself. And, yeah. um, and one of the things that we did is we actually pulled together a series of trainers, um, people who had built very successful companies, and we got them to teach these, these five skills and um, and I sat in and, and did Accelerator number one myself. I wrote my own book on, on my first Accelerator. Um, and uh, so it was kind of a little bit all, all happening. Um, I was always just that one step ahead of the clients, but ultimately I was going through it myself. Uh, yeah. In 2010, I was positioning myself as a key person of influence. Brilliant, brilliant. And you, um, you mentioned in, uh, in the book, and I was talking to somebody last week about, uh, a mount, um, you, you said that people are stood on a mountain of value. Yeah. Um, and, and the person that I was talking to was saying, I'm, uh, I'm stood on a mountain of value apparently, but how do I know what that value is and, and how can I extract some of that value? Do you have any, yeah. any, any best practice or tips that if somebody's in that position and maybe they've been doing a particular career for a particular period of time for quite mm. a while and, and then how, do, how would they extract that value? Well, it's a great metaphor. And the metaphor is that you're standing on this mountain and, and if you've ever stood on a mountain, 
you can see everything going on except for the mountain that's right underneath you. You've got a great view of every yeah. other mountain in the in the, in the area. Yeah. Uh, you've got a great view of all the rivers and the valleys and everything. But the one thing that you cannot see is the mountain that you're standing on. So it's actually a really common uh, thing that I see. So many people, they get excited about what others are doing in their industry and they, they recognize so easily the value in someone else, but then they struggle to recognize the value in themselves. Um, so yeah, there's a bit of a process. It's about understanding uh, your achievements and understanding your passions and understanding, uh, you know, what what lines up with your purpose and all of those kind of things that we do a bit of that work. But from a very practical standpoint, if you think about it like this, that a, a key ingredient in in influence is that you've got some sort of an insight that probably comes from success. Yeah. And um, people want to know that you've succeeded at something. Uh, or, or, you know, and it could be small, but you could be cl quite close to it or you've done it many, many times over. But you need to have <clears throat> a degree of success that you've achieved and you need to be able to share that. And what happens with most people is they achieve things, but then they just move straight on to the next thing. They don't capture it. They don't tell the stories about it. They don't formalize it into a case study or a, or a document of any sort. You know, so it's, it's really all it's often the case that I'll be sitting down talking to one of our clients and they'll say, Oh, you know, I'm not really on a mountain of value. And I say, well, have you ever been involved in an award winning project? And they go, yeah, we've had projects that win awards. And I say, well, what kind of awards? And they go, Oh, actually we've won, you know, major industry awards over the last four or five years. And I go, okay. And uh, I say, have you worked with any big name brands? And they go, yeah, we've worked with British Airways and Rolls Royce. And, you know, we worked with KPMG and like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and have, you know, have you, uh, have you got any qualifications? It's like, yeah, I've actually got a, you know, a master's degree from London school of economics and, uh, it's, Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> and when you put the pieces of the puzzle together and you lay it out in front of them, you say, yeah, this is pretty extraordinary stuff. We need to start talking about this and need to put this into the pitch and, and, uh, and put this into the story and start telling some of these stories. And they say, Oh yeah, but it's not special because I know other people who have done that as well. And I go, yeah, okay. But, it's not special in your industry, but it's certainly special to a lot of people who are on, you know, who are considering buying from you. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, considering that you'll spend 99% of your time just talking about the functional skills that everyone's got, uh, it might be worth talking about some of these achievements. Completely. Completely. So um, if, well, I guess, hypothetically speaking now, if you, uh, if you had a podcast that might be called uh, problem solved business and you're uh, you're a frequent poster on, um, say, say LinkedIn, and mm -hmm. you, you're getting, and you've got a growing um, consultancy and coaching and training business that's growing steadily with what you're doing. Is there mm -hmm. two or three, two or three things you could do to expedite that growth? Mm, do you know someone like this? Um, no, no, nobody's bringing to mind currently. It's, uh, but, but possibly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm, a, I'm allowed one selfish question, Anton. Yeah, of course. Uh, so. There's a few things that I, there's a few fundamental things. So it's positioning yourself as a key person of influence. So you're doing things like publishing and you're raising profile and you're building community. Um, so the, the key elements that um, are important is to have a product ecosystem. So in order to monetize, you need four products. You need a gift, which a podcast is a gift. Um, yeah. a, uh, you need a product for prospects, which is a first way for someone to do business with you. It might be a low risk first step, maybe a workshop or it's a, um, a diagnostic tool uh, or a, um, 
you know, maybe a, an online uh, learning management system people can access or a set of tools and resources, but it's a low risk first step. Yeah. Um, and then as a result of people having experienced, having, having a positive experience with a gift and a product for prospects, you then want to have a good, robust core product, something that is a full and remarkable solution that really solves people's problems using a methodology, using a set of tools or insights that are proprietary to you. Um, and then you want to have a recurring revenue or retainer model to, to essentially support people long term and to work with people long term and take them further and further. So having all four of those products is, a, um, is, a, is an essential element to having the scalability financially. Yeah. Um, you know, ultimately, very successful companies have good, solid core products, recurring revenue products, and also products that generate attention. Uh, and then the the next thing that I always say to entrepreneurs is that entrepreneurship is fundamentally a team sport. Um, in the same way that football is a team sport, and yeah, sure enough, you could kick a football around on in, on your own, and you could maybe kick a ball up against the wall, or you could even have you know one on one. You could have one person versus one person. But ultimately, that's not lots of fun. It's a team sport. It's it's a sport that's fun when you're kicking the ball between people on your team yeah. and that you're working together as a team. So, you know, for me, as fast as humanly possible, I want to see businesses with four people. I want to see one person playing the role of key person of influence, someone in sales, someone in management and admin, uh, and someone in technical delivery and, and customer satisfaction type thing. And I want to get essentially that team dynamic going as fast as possible. Um, there's a simulation game that we play where we get uh, people to manufacture paper airplanes. Okay. And, um, and essentially, you have to make a paper airplane. You have to throw it from one line. To the, it has to cross the other line. And then you have to pick it up, take it over to a table and have it valued and collect some money from, uh, from the plane buyers. And we don't tell people, but they're allowed to form teams if they want to. And they don't, we don't tell them they're not allowed to, but we basically pit them against each other one-to-one -one. and um, invariably someone twigs that they could actually get three or four of them together and uh, and they um, they start working together as a team and the speed at which that team progresses exponentially uh, is you know is the, the others working by themselves don't even stand a chance because as soon as one person's folding paper airplanes, one person's throwing paper airplanes and one person's picking them up and collecting the money, uh, you know, you've got the specialization of labor yeah. and, you know, and away it goes and, and you just kind of, it's not three times as many uh, paper planes. It's something like six times or eight times as many paper planes get created in the same amount of time. Um, and it's to, I, I play that game to try and illustrate this idea that you just can't beat a team. So um, I'm as fast as possible. I'm always trying to put people together with with teammates. How do you know you're choosing the right people? Uh, I like to start with the idea that you're probably choosing the wrong people, and and that's fine. all right. Um, so I think people get hung up on choosing the right people. The the truth is that the right people already have good jobs at Google, and um, okay. you can't afford them. Uh, so get on with working with the wrong people. Go yeah. and find that. Go and find that young person who's out, who's you know, who's struggling to get get going in there, just coming out of university. Um, you know, find that person who didn't get good grades, but they've got a bit of passion. Uh, find that um, person who is a uh, single mother who can only work between you know ten and three, 
and, and needs the flexibility of time. But actually, between the between the day hours, if she can work from home, um, you know, she can get a lot done for those those four or five hours. You know, so you're looking for almost a ragtag bunch of um, of people who've got you know who've got a bit of time available. Yeah. Now it changes. It uh, it ultimately changes gear, right? Eventually, you will have a a more professional team. And you'll hire based on CVs and experience and all that sort of stuff, but nobody starts that way. Yeah. Um, you have to. You have to start with. You have to start with what you can get. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's and that's fine, right? So, uh, last night I, I interviewed Karen Brady from wow. uh, from The Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, I was doing a, an event for American Express, and and what's interesting is Karen Brady. She was this twenty-year-old who got a sales job, and then she got poached to uh, to a publishing company, and then. She went to the chairman and said, hey, there's an insolvent football club. Maybe I could run it. And at 22 years old, as a high school university dropout, um, you know, she basically took an insolvent football club, floated it five years later and sold it for $85 million a few years after that. And, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes a young, enthusiastic uh, 20-something who doesn't have a safety net and has something to prove and wants to work hard and go for it, is actually more valuable and, and will get a lot done compared to someone who's got years and years of experience and they're they're actually just wanting to put their feet up a little bit. Yeah, completely. No, that's great. Great story. So your next, your next. Um, so maybe tomorrow when you're doing another interview, uh, are you going to mention that you spoke to me? Or are you going to mention Karen Brady? No, I'm going to mention you. Oh, Absolutely. Very, very kind of you to say. Um, um, so you, you talk about what you do, you write about what you do, and every day you do what you do, and, and you talk with, with great passion about what you do as well. What, what, how do you maintain that, that, that level of, of passion for what you do? Look, I'm really fortunate that I've, I'm one of these terrible, annoying people who's found their thing. Um, you know, I kind of, I just completely geek out on entrepreneurship um, and business. I love it. Uh, the other day I had a long, stressful day, kind of lots of pressure, and then I just wanted to lay down and, and, and kick off my shoes at the end of the day. I went and lay on the bed and I picked up my iPad and I watched um, a 45-minute video about an entrepreneur <laughs> scaling their business. I thought to myself afterwards, I thought, you know, I really do geek out on this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, for me... I, I made up a game that I wanted to play years ago, and the game is I want to develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up, and make a positive impact in the world. Uh, I want to get 10,000 companies aligned to the United Nations Global Goals. Uh, I want to um, uh, use entrepreneurship as a force for good on the planet and see if you can create businesses that grow and scale and do good at the same time. Yeah. And essentially, I just love that. I just have fun with it. I know that sounds so geeky and naff, but, um, but I just enjoy it. And, uh, and I'm surrounded, I'm up to my elbows in fast growth companies and they're all interesting. So, yeah. you know, so for me, I basically know two days are the same um, and uh, I'm always meeting fascinating people and, and uh, I enjoy it. Well, I think that that's the key, isn't it? It's around having complete clarity of, of purpose and understanding what you do and, what, and following that passion. At, at what point did you realise and the kind of actually this is what you wanted to do and how did, how did you kind of, did you, did you have that passion then and then follow or has a passion grown? Um, it was actually, I realized that I was, um, I realized that there was in, in several of my businesses, I realized that I wasn't passionate. I went through a series of things where it wasn't right. And I kind of went, you know, 
I thought to myself in one business, I thought, why am I, why is it that I'm making money, but I have no interest in this. Um, yeah. And I'm, I don't even want to go to work. I don't even want to, you know, there's this acti- you know, there's this trade show that we could go to and make a ton of money. And it's like, I don't even want to go. I don't want to get on the plane. I don't want to do it. And it's sucking the life out of me. And even though it's lucrative and I thought that's, that's really weird, you know, and kind of that, that happened. And then, there were certain things that I said, you know, there it's like I'd love to do this, but I, you know, there's not a lot of money in it, and I kind of started triangulating through through a bit of trial and error, and, and kind of discovering what do I like, what do I, what don't I like, what are my values, um, what are the who are the types of people that energize me versus suck the life out of me, and um, and I think I probably got ten wrongs before I started thinking about what might be right, yeah. um, and then. And then the, the big moment came when I, when I thought, you know, gee, I really hope I discover my purpose. And then I, uh, I think maybe someone said something or I might have read a book or an article on it. And they just basically said, you just got to make one up and pretend it's real. And the, the analogy is like you've got to almost invent a board game and then forget you invented it and go off and play it. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, that's cool. I like that. So I sort of spent a, a couple of hours sitting there saying, you know, uh, what's the board game I want to play for the rest of my life? How do I want to, you know, how do I want to build it? What What are the rules? What would be a game? What would be a game worth playing? Win, lose, or draw? Yeah. And um, I thought, okay, I want to want to have a come up with something, and then forget that I made it up and go off and play it as though it's real. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. You You've used the game analogy twice now in this conversation as well. So and I think that's 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 really resonating with me because you you've got to you've got to enjoy what you're doing and does does calling it what you do a game help you do that i think it just came naturally it feels like a game if you think about like a monopoly or something the money's there to keep score right the money's you see you you go around the board and collect 200 and you know you it's it's a great way of keeping score but that's not the point of the game you know if you wanted to you could just dish out the money and it wouldn't be very fun um the you know the point of the game is is collecting the properties and you know all of that sort of stuff so I think business is kind of like that, that money's there as a great way to keep score. It's a great way to kind of, um, you know, shed some truth or some light on what you're doing and whether anyone else sees it as valuable or whether you're, you know, doing something that, that's working or not. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then the rest is just kind of having fun and, and taking stuff to market and seeing what works and learning and experimenting and seeing if you can turn your little three greenhouses into a red hotel or something like that. Yeah, perfect, perfect. And as you know, this podcast is called Business Problem Solved. What do you think the number one business um, problem is that needs solving? It's different problems at different phases. There's kind of like four big problems in the entrepreneur journey. Um, so the first problem is is getting a good concept. Um, so coming up with a good idea. And there are good ideas and bad ideas. And um, no human being comes up with great ideas on their own. You come up with a decent idea take it into the marketplace, get feedback, conduct some surveys, show people some prototypes, see if people will click on some links. And uh, and then at the end of that process, you kind of go, okay, I'll make some adjustments and now I've got a decent idea. So, so problem number one is having a concept. Problem number two is a value proposition. It's basically, will people pay for this? Will people, can I find an audience? Can I package this up in a way that they're interested in it? And can I find a way of selling it, generating some leads and making some sales? So that, uh, that's the second problem, which is the value proposition. Yeah. Uh, third problem is becoming an influencer. So becoming a standout person, a go-to brand, someone who gets cut through 
someone who can attract a team, someone who can attract funding if you need funding. Uh, so that's, you know, it's being that kind of person that people want to um, crowd around and, and work with. And then the fourth problem, which is the bigger one, which is kind of scaling and all that sort of stuff, revolves around formalizing an asset. And, and ultimately, when you once you've formalized a proprietary asset, you've created your own set of assets, that's where you can get an exit, you can scale, you can go international, you can hire a big team of 50 plus people and still make lots of money and, um, and not be worried about the overhead. So you've got to go through these four big problems. So, you know, get the concept, get the value proposition, become an influencer and then formalize your own asset. Got you. Got you. Okay. No, perfect. Thank you. And what, so what's the worst advice that you've ever received? <laughs> um, worst advice. Yeah. So, so sometimes yeah. I, I, I hear a lot of good advice that people give, but what's, what's the worst advice that you've received? Um, well, some heard? bad, I mean, some bad advice was, was, um, just giving away equity to, to, to people because I liked them. Yeah. Um, and you know, in the early stages I thought, oh, you know, it wouldn't it be great for us to be in business together and, and, uh, and, you know, I'll give you a chunk of equity and, you know, essentially because of the hope that we, that we will work together and the hope that you'll be motivated to build the business. And that was terrible. I had to, you know, there's one particular situation where I had to buy back a big chunk of equity, uh, take out a huge loan at the worst possible time in order to get someone out of the business who was just dragging the whole thing down. Um, you know, so, so that was, you know, that was pretty tough time. Um, and, um, you know, there was some advice around, there was some advice that I had around, um, around, you know, going after the money, which doesn't work. You know, yeah. the, I've, I've, I've had some advice, you know, pretty, pretty terrible advice that you know, chasing the money is a good idea. And it just doesn't, it doesn't, if there's, if there's quite clearly money in something and you can see it from a distance then it's already over, the bus is already moving and people are already on the bus and you're not going to catch them. You've actually got to go after something that you're going to stick with long enough to succeed um, and that you're happy to play win, lose or draw. And probably the other, the other advice that is negative that, that I've had um, that is, is, you know, kind of drawing things out that you know are wrong, you know things aren't, aren't right, you know that a particular person's just not going to work out uh, on the team. But rather than ripping that band-aid, you know, it's like, oh, let's give them another three months or let's let's persist and see where we get to in three to six months' time. And, and you know, I've had some times where I've had uh, had essentially some advice of, you know, it came from well-meaning, but it was kind of like it was the advice of, oh, well, give it time, give it time. Um, you know, things will change. Yeah. And actually, better advice would have been uh, trust your awareness if your awareness is going off like a uh, like a rocket inside your head that this isn't right, you yeah. know, if you've got a little if you've got a, a little alarm going off, then you need to tune into that and, and act upon your awareness. Yeah, got you, got you. Okay, no, perfect. So um, I should have mentioned earlier on that the, the five P's are pitch, publish, uh, product profile, product. And, and partnership. Um, yep. Which is the most difficult one to master? I think it's different from for, for each person. Some people are co quite comfortable with pitching and building profile, but they suck at creating products. Some people are great at creating products, but then they're terrible at getting them out to marketplace and uh, they micromanage. They don't want to have a partner involved. Um, you know, they want to do it all on their own. So they, they, they get very um, wary of partnerships and, 
so I think everyone's going to have a couple that are strong and a couple that are weak. And it's yeah. about being strong in all five. Uh, you need all five of them to be strong in order to get the multiplier effect. Um, if you look at mathematically, if you look at, um, uh, you know, 10 times 10 times 10 times zero, uh, basically you end up with zero. And it's kind of like that with, um, with the with the five P's that they multiply against each other, but if any of them are zero, then it kind of resets all of them to zero. Yeah, got you, got you. In and you you also advocate in the book that you've got to do them in that order as well. Um, does it? It helps. It help, helps to do it in the in the right order. Yeah, but but you um, if somebody as say um, is a frequent um, uh, has been in a book or they, they they can actually start again, can't they? They can't. It's uh it's not a has to be that order or else it's a kind of uh, yeah, you don't yeah you don't have to start with a blank piece of paper that's a yeah. good point um but it's good when you're looking to refresh this stuff it's good to start with pitch yeah and then if you get if you do get the pitch right then you publish documents that amplify that pitch and if that's getting traction you create more products that rep better represent that and then you raise the profile because now you've got the products and then you go and do some partnerships who want to work with you because you've got a decent profile. Got you. Got you. How, um, and you talk in the, in the book as well about um, about micro niches. Is there is there such a thing as a, um, a micro niche that's too micro? Oh, I think there's probably a micro niche that's too micro if you stayed there. Yeah. Um, so if you said I'm only going to um, only going to go and uh, work with people who have a pet octopus and uh, and live in a you know four-story apartment it's like oh, okay there's not a lot of people like that um but if if that's all if that's the only place you stayed yeah uh then you know so another word for a micro niche is a, is a campaign um so if you think about it that when you're launching a business i recommend people launch into a micro niche because it's just being able to show up as very valuable and then you can expand so for example if you said, I'm going to run personal development seminars, right? I'm going to do a personal development boot camp for anyone and everyone and all anyone can come along, well, then most people would say, well, okay, well, how are you different to Tony Robbins who's been doing it for 30 years and who's, you know, kind of famous and you can go to Tony Robbins' thing for 500 pounds for three days or something like that. Now you're in competition with Tony Robbins. But if you said... Uh, I'm going to do professional and personal development for um, partners in, in law firms in London. Uh, and we're going to really focus in on the needs of someone who's at a, par a partner level in their law firm. Uh, you know, now you're not in competition with Tony Robbins. You kind of you know you've got your own specialty. So thinking about a niche is almost like a campaign. It's going after something. It's actually chasing a high value client. You're looking for someone who's a high value client who's not price sensitive, sees the value over the price and someone who you can tune in and deliver some layer of specialty to them that um, that uh, that they're going to resonate with. And as soon as you've achieved that and that you, and that that's working well, you can broaden your niche, you can campaign for something else, you can campaign for a bigger marketplace. But the reason people don't niche is because they think that by casting a wide net, uh, they'll get more, <laughs> they'll get more. Yeah. It's just not, the, it's just not the case. Actually, what they really think is that they're trying to avoid selling. So they think to themselves, if I say that I can do anything to any for anyone, then people will come to me and I won't have to do any sales. Whereas as soon as I know that I'm in a niche and I'm campaigning, it means that I've got to go and actually talk to people and do some sales. 
and yeah. uh, in in mo- for most people, especially anyone who's got a technical background, they just uh, there's this thing that kills them called ABS breaking. Anything but sales. Um, so they won't go after it. They won't do the marketing. They won't do the selling. They won't pick up the phone. They won't set up the meeting. They just they're just kind of broadcasting. And, and hoping someone comes to them. Yeah, yeah. No, I, re- I really like that. Abby. So do you think it's because the um, it is because it's so wide and they've not got clarity on who it is. Is that is is that what it is? ABS breaking. Yes. No, yeah. no, no, no. The reason people ABS breaking is because we all hate sales. All right. Okay. You know, doing sales calls is like doing exercise. No one really likes it. Um, you know, I think all things all things being equal, we'd rather not talk to strangers. Um, we'd rather not run around the gym lifting heavy plates of metal. Um, you have to do this yeah. stuff because it's good for you. Uh, yeah. But also, you know, sales is an incredibly unnatural. Um, it's an unnatural uh, type of behaviour. You know, it's really not natural that you would talk to a stranger and ask them to make some sort of a decision or take some form of action, or um, that you would present them with an idea and try and influence them to. To, to go along with that idea, yeah. um, you know, most of the time, normal adults kind of like the idea of letting everyone else just go do their own thing. And, uh, you know, huh. in the same way that Shakespeare is an unnatural way of speaking, but you have to learn how to do it if you want to be on the stage. Um, sales is an unnatural way of speaking, but you have to learn how to do it if you're going to be in business. Yeah. And, and, and there's, having- no, there's no avoiding it. No, and I think by having clarity on that niche and that person, that that um, that person you're going after, makes it a little bit easier because you know who you who you the type of person you, that you're going to talk to. Um, yes. How do you go for that next though? So if how do you how do you get somebody to make that call or to to perfect that um, that first conversation with it being so unnatural? Um, well, you know, the first thing, well, the first thing I like to do is really emphasize to, to all people, to entrepreneurs or professionals, that it is unnatural. If it doesn't feel natural to you, that's normal. That's human. You'd be a bit of a, a weird person. You'd be the kind of person who speaks Shakespearean all the time, <laughs> you know, as, as rare as that person might be, you'd, you'd be that kind of person. So the first thing is just to re- reiterate sales is not a normal or natural thing. So it's yeah. going to feel clunky. It's going to feel uh, weird. Um, and then what we do is we do role play. Uh, so even though that seems so stupid in the same way, a, um, a professional actor does, they don't go and rehearse in front of a live audience. They, they rehearse uh, in a rehearsal room with other actors. So what you do is you you do some uh, role play, you do some um, scripting, script. You rehearse, you script, uh, you pretend. You know, you call up your friend and and do a role play. They do a role play of their sales, their sales to you, and you do one to them. Yeah. And you just kind of you kind of build your confidence in a safe environment. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, and I'm I'm certainly not. I'm not talking about, by the way, just to be really clear, I'm not talking about weird selling like cold calling or, or, um, you know, getting people to buy on the spot and, you know, kind of that kind of real hustling selling. I'm not talking, I'm not even talking about that. That's, that's right up that kind of unethical end or that weird end. But I'm just talking about the idea of going out and meeting with someone and talking through a product and then actually asking, you know, would you like to, uh, would you like to go ahead with that? You know, would, would this be something that in principle would solve, solve the needs of, of your organization that we could, could we go ahead or do you need another meeting? 
would you know would you like me to send you through the paperwork you know like those kind of weird questions that yeah. ideally you wouldn't have to ask if you didn't have to but yeah. um but but ultimately it's those questions that kind of pay the bills so basically you have to role play you have to you have to go through a um a little a little set of exercises and build your confidence and then go do it for real mess it up uh and do 30 sales meetings and see what your conversions are and, and see whether you need to do more training or not yeah no i really, I really like that because one of the one of the biggest challenges that i i find myself with in in, in my head is is moving from a, a digital world to a, to a to a spoken word and and going mm. from I'm it's really comfortable chatting with people and posting on um, maybe on LinkedIn and, and but it's that next step, it's uh, that's overcoming that barrier that I think is uh, is, yeah. is one of a challenge that I have personally and also well, I know it's a huge barrier Lee, because because mostly people go online to learn and to gather information, but mostly the big sales the big sales happen offline. Yes. People want to, people want to, you know, if someone's going to sign a 20 or 30,000 pound consulting deal or something like that, they want to meet you yeah. normally. Yeah. Com yeah. Completely. Completely. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, no, that, that's right. That's right. So that's the, that's the barrier that I'm trying to, uh, to overcome. Um, oh, no. Um, so yeah, so that's role, role play. It yeah. is. Role play. It is. And the other thing that, you know, just acknowledge that it's, it's weird and it's different. And it's also, by the way, it's really weird selling yourself. You know, it's much easier to sell a sports car or a, or a piece of camera equipment and you can talk about something that's not you. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it is it is strange and awkward trying to trying to sell the thing that you do. Uh, so it needs just a bit of practice and it needs to kind of um, build the confidence and and uh, and realize that it's not about you. It's about solving someone else's problem. And, and you've got to kind of do a bit of that work to, yeah. to, to train you, train yourself on it. I'm going to apologize for this question before I ask it, but it's just popped into my head now. It's uh, and you've mentioned sales is a weird thing to do. What's what's another weird thing that you've done? <laughs> uh, how, how weird are we talking? Well, right? it's, it's entirely up to you. Well, it's true. Um, I think. Well, look, uh, it's probably not the fun answer that you're looking for, but it was pretty weird to be a 22-year-old starting a company and and be under 25 with a team of 30 people and. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, 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 you know, I was talking to, the, as I said, with Karen Brady last night, I said to her, you know, did you find it weird or normal at the time um, that you were 23, 24 running a football club? And she said at the time, I just was getting on with doing all the work. And I said, yeah, I, that was my experience as well. But I look back at it now. Yeah. And I think, gee, that was such a weird thing. I was a weird kid. Basically, yeah. I was a you know, it's uh, if I met a 23 year old who was doing the same sort of thing, I'd be like, gee, you're a weird kid. Just, you know, <laughs> what? Yeah. what are you doing? You know, no, so. I'm, yeah, that's, I think that's so that is really, really interesting that, that actually when you're in the moment, it's not weird to you. So if I, um, I rec um, and again, a slight digression, I, I recorded a video of myself in the bath and posted it on LinkedIn uh, a couple of months ago. And I thought that was a more. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I, uh, I thought, but I thought that was quite normal when I was doing it because what I was trying to do is overcome the problem of uh, and uh, get people to stop from scrolling to click on my video. So I thought that was a normal thing to do. And then when I've, when I've got put it out there, people have said to me, that's very weird to do. And now I reflect back and think, oh, yeah, that might have been seen as a weird thing. But when I was in the it moment, could. it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't weird. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Come back to haunt you when you run for prime minister or something like that. Yes, yeah, it, could, it it probably will do. Yeah, yeah. So that um, anyway, yeah. So that's just popped into my head. Then, um, what's what's next for you? 
so I've just done some fundraising around a new company. Um, we, uh, we've got a company called ScoreApp, uh, which is basically harnessing data and, and turning it into hyper-targeted marketing campaigns based on, based on data. Yeah. Um, so it's a, we're pioneering a type of marketing called scorecard marketing, um, which is getting people to fill in scorecards and then talking to them about their results and, and creating a targeted campaign around that. And it's very similar to surveys and that sort of stuff, but we've got a bit of a different spin on it and we're using a lot of tech to automate it. So I've raised some money around that. We're building a team around it. We're launching that um, uh, as we speak. And actually that's kind of like, you know, my new fun fun thing, my new toy, my new baby. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that uh, that's, that's an exciting one. I'm writing another book called Doubling Speed. Uh, all about companies that double and double and double and double. Um, and I'm also working on a book at the moment called How to Raise Entrepreneurial Kids, where we've got 100 people who are submitting stories about how they've been raising entrepreneurial kids and how they uh, get their kids thinking about opportunity and sales and making products and all that sort of stuff. Oh, so so a few, proje few projects in the pipelines. Yeah, just on that kids one, that does, that's really intriguing. So I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, is there anything that's coming out of that the uh, the research for that for that book that uh, that I could maybe get them to uh, to do? Yeah, so you know, a lot of people are just it's those little daily tasks of um, of things like saving, delayed gratification, um, having having little jobs that get paid, and um, uh, and seeing where, how long it takes them to figure out that they can outsource those jobs. Um, you know, so those kind of those kind of things. It's, it's it's playing games that involve um, transactions. So, uh, you know, even at the even at the age of two, they love to play shop um, yeah. and buying and selling things. They love to be a little shopkeeper and they love to sell you things uh, at their little shop. So it's really encouraging those kind of um, games. Um, it's actually when a child tries to negotiate with you, where you say no, and then they say, what if I did this? What if I did that? How, how about that? It's actually praising them for the negotiation uh, skill as opposed to um, what most parents say, no means no. You know, yeah. if I say no, you must never negotiate with me because you're actually laying a belief system at that age um, that, uh, that, that there's no room for negotiation. And actually, yeah. Some of the things that I, you know, I've got three kids as well, uh, five, two, and one. And with my five-year-old, I've actually said to him, if you improve your argument, then I might change my mind. Uh, you know, if you, oh, wow. if you can't, maybe if you think about it differently or if you, if you uh, improve the way you ask or if you change the way, change your approach and I might change my mind. So it's that kind of the opposite of no means no. I mean, of course, no means no in certain situations, yeah. but, but, but no, you know, there's room for negotiation in these, in, in debate and, uh, and just kind of um, being aware that I don't want him to think that, uh, that there's, there's never a time to negotiate. Yeah. I really like that. The other one that's really good yeah. is that children around this age, they start asking about work. And um, one of the things that's come up that's a common theme amongst people who are putting in um, who are putting in stories is that they never say words like "I have to go to work," I, you know, "Daddy doesn't want to go to work, but I have to." Um, so when kids ask about what's work, what is it that you do for work? You say, "Well, for work, I create things, I make things, I talk to people, I interview people, I meet new people, I you know, I, 
and I really enjoy work. Yeah. And you actually, you're actually trying to teach them that work is something to be enjoyed and that you do things that, you've, that are fun and that you're passionate about and that actually you're looking for meaningful work and that it's good work. And, and it's very easy to be in the habit of like, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't go to that because I have to go to work today. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that can send a, a bit of an interesting message as well about what the world of work is going to be like. Yeah, I love, I love that. Yeah, positively. For, yeah, work, I've made it in so many notes so far. Um, before we hit the record button, um, you mentioned that you're, uh, you've re-released Oversubscribed. Is that correct? Yeah, so Oversubscribed is out today. Um, I released it in 2015 and I've rewritten about 15,000 words and updated it. And oh, wow. It's just, it's just just literally this hour we've just gone to number one of all business books in the UK. Oh, congratulations. So that's, uh, that's great. Yeah, no, it is. So why did, you, why did you change it or why did you redo it? <clears throat> well, I wrote it in 2014, released it in 2015, and then Donald Trump, uh, came and messed everything up in 2016 and I had to change the book. Uh, the reason I say that is that um, US presidential elections are like the Formula One of marketing campaigns. Um, so they, they, they tell you what's going to happen for the next 10 years. So uh, Franklin Roosevelt did a campaign uh, called the Radio Fireside Chat and that actually moved people from print to radio. Um, JFK did a televised debate against Nixon and that moved everyone from um, from uh, uh, radio to television. Uh, Obama did a campaign around social media marketing and social media engagement and that moved everyone from television to social media. Yeah. And all through the 2010s, it was all about social media and building a personal brand and leveraging personal brand using social media. And then Donald Trump in 2016 did hyper-targeted marketing through data and um, and he basically moved the game to data analytics and data hyper-targeted data-driven marketing. And, um, and what that means is that all through the 2020s, the companies that are most successful in their marketing campaigns are the ones that have the most data and use the most data and, and powerfully use the most data. And it's no, it's no longer the people who have the social media engagement and the social media platform advantage. And... Um, and essentially, the, the conversation has moved. So I think you probably might have remembered in 2010, everyone started calling themselves a social media marketer yeah. um, or a social media consultant. Well, or, or you couldn't go to a networking function without seeing a social media consultant. Um, well, I think what you'll see in the 2020s is that everyone will start calling themselves a data scientist or a data marketing analyst or something along those lines. Um, and it'll be all about collecting data, using data, um, Cambridge Analytica approach to marketing. Obviously, there's ethical uh, boundaries when you're trying to win an election with it, but if you're just trying to grow a business, then they're actually phenomenal. To what Cambridge Analytica did uh, is just phenomenally smart. If you're, yeah, and there's no ethical problem with it. If you're trying to sell some products, if you're yeah. trying to, if you're trying to topple democracies, then then it's probably <laughs> a step too far. But um, but. Uh, but it's actually a very, very smart approach to marketing. So my book had to reflect that. I can't have a marketing campaign book out um, that doesn't reflect the importance of harnessing data uh, in the uh, in today's in the 2020s. Completely. So, um, question on that then is: is it Facebook and Amazon that are all own the majority of this data? Um, how would a small startup business 
go to um, to start to either leverage, would they leverage that database or would they start to create their own data sets? Depends on how small, but um, a very, very small business might just um, start. I mean, essentially think about it like this. Your, your best friend in all the world is someone that you actually have a lot of data on. You, you are actually a data expert on your best friend in yeah. the sense that you, you know all sorts of things about them. You know the silly things they've done, their, their regrets, their hopes for the future, um, their most embarrassing moment, you know, you know how much they can drink without getting drunk, you know, all sorts of these weird things that you know about your best friend. Yeah. Um, and that's actually all data. That's, that's data. And it means that you can show up in a hyper-targeted way to your best friend. So you can call up your best friend and say something straight away it captures their attention, makes them laugh, uh, is totally relevant to what they're dealing with at the moment because you're best friends. So actually, believe it or not, that's a data that's a data problem. <laughs> so um, you're you're already a master of collecting data and using data if you if you've got a best friend. Yeah. Uh, and you just need to apply that same logic to how would you do that at scale and how would you respond that way at scale so that you can make lots of people. Um, feel very connected to your brand because you show up in a really powerful way and a unique way for them. Um, so uh, in a very practical sense, a small business can run surveys and respond to people based on how they, how they answered the survey. If someone says they like the product in blue, then send them, you know, the product in blue. Um, if someone says that they want it to be twice as big, make it twice as big. So, um, so the idea is that you collect data and you build you build stuff and you respond to that data, and that you don't just respond in one way. You can you want to build a business that can respond to people in multiple ways based on their preferences. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it might sound like that's a little bit uh, pie in the sky, but actually the technology is becoming available to really do that and customize that. What um, yeah. I mean, the technology I'm building at the moment called ScoreApp.com. You know, that's exactly what we're creating. Um, and in the same way that in 2008, the idea of sending a tweet or uploading videos to YouTube or building a network online probably felt a bit foreign at the time. Yeah. Uh, and now it's now it's the easiest thing in the world. Well, actually, the same thing's going to happen with data. Data is going to be as easy as social media 10 years from now. Okay, perfect. No, thank, thank you for that. So if people wanted to, to learn more about you, what you do, um, buy any of your books, what where would you recommend they go? Well, buy the oversubscribed book at the moment because that's the uh, that's the <laughs> one I'm I'm uh, trying to get out there. Yeah. Um, connect with me online, uh, Instagram or uh, LinkedIn or Twitter, um, any of those. You can follow me on Facebook, uh, join one of my groups, um, and uh, yeah, uh, our website is dent.global, and you're more than welcome. It would be wonderful to to catch up and discover what that mountain of value is. Perfect. And uh, I guess one final question from me is what does an author, speaker, entrepreneurial go-to guy and CEO of Dent Global offer the tea? <laughs> I, I'm very lucky that um, my wife is uh, massively into cooking. She loves cooking. And every, every single night, I don't know what I'm going to get, but I know it's going to be great. Um, and like last night it was... Um, it was fish that was cooked inside this kind of green seaweedy thing oh, wow. um, with chili flakes and lemon juice. And, uh, and it was like this really kind of, you know, it was baked in foil to begin with. And then it was just, it was just awesome. I thought, how lucky am I? I can't believe, can't believe my luck. 
that huh. uh, that my wife just loves making these kind of th- these kind of things. So, so, so does she um, use, does she use data to to make it to, for decisions on what to cook or? She heard that. Well, she she certainly taps into the recipe books. I don't think she cares what I. What, she doesn't ask me what I what I would like. She just she just takes the initiative. But um, yeah. but she just for her she hates screens, hates phones and iPads and all this sort of stuff, and just loves ingredients. And she loves going to market and finding fresh ingredients and all this sort of stuff. It's like it's a hobby that she has that I reap all the benefits for. Yeah, amazing, amazing. No, so, uh, thank thank you very much for that, and uh, and thank you again for the for the time you spent. I'm conscious you're a busy, popular chap. Um, so yeah, I just want to thank you for your time uh, today, and uh, and I look forward to being able to uh, to catch up with you again soon. Yeah, and I'll look forward to seeing the bath videos as we go forward. <laughs> yeah, be careful what you wish for, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Right. Thanks for having Cheers. me on the have podcast. A, have a good day. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Business Problems Solved. You can contact Lee on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lee Horton, the business problem solver, or via visiting www.leehorton.com for more content and to solve your business problems. And remember, saying you know how to do it is not doing it.